In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Hey, Craig's listeners. It's uh, it's Craig. Thank you for tuning in for another Craig's List Spooky Times. We're getting close to the end of the month of October, but uh, I, I just wanted to open this episode by reading some excerpts of some of the reviews that we've gotten so far for uh, for this podcast. Thank you very much for all the, the nice things that you've said. Uh, I, I don't have time to read the full reviews, but I'm just going to maybe pull out some isolated words. So people so far have described us as creepy, Ooh. also kooky. Ooh. Some people said mysterious. Uh, one guy said spooky. Some have called us altogether ooky, which I'm not sure whether that's a compliment or an insult, but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, our house is a museum. I don't know how you know what our house looks like. It's more of an apartment, actually. <laughs> uh, not sure if that's relevant. Uh, they really are a scream. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. And uh, specifically, people have called Carla neat, sweet, and petite. Oh, nice. So take that compliment, Carla. I'm taking it. I'm yeah. running. I'm running with it. So so get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're going to pay a call on Craig and Carla Kakowski. <laughs> so I feel like we've gotten a mandate to keep this podcast going for the rest of October with all this encouragement. So friends, rest assured, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to say what we want to say. We're going to live how we want to live. Carla, we're also going to play how we want to play. And we're definitely going to dance how we want to dance, which is like people at the prom at Carrie with our uh, hands on each other's Swing. shoulders. And then kick and they slap a friend. Are we the Adams family? Well, we're Craig and Carla Kakowski. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to talk about the Adams family today, Carla. Okay. Are you cool with that? I love it. I'm excited. You've needed a palate cleanser or two throughout this endeavor. And here's an entire episode to serve as a palate cleanser. Yes. This is a comedy. It is. It's a comedy. Specifically, Spooky comedy. This is what we watched. We watched the Adams Family 1991 movie. We watched Adams Family Values, the sequel with most of the same cast that came out two years later. And we just watched a little bit of the cartoon that came out last year and a little bit of the original television series. But really, today we're going to talk about the Adams Family and Adams Family Values. Correct. And as you know, Carla, me being a snob and me being a stickler, I know you're anticipating me saying that the Adams Family is not horror, uh, but I can say that in 1991, the... <laughs> I've lost it again. <laughs> in 1991, the Horror Hall of Fame named the Adams Family the best horror film of the year. 
Really? So it's got some bona fides from a legitimate peer based organization. I've never heard of this organization. Well, it's the Horror Hall of Fame, so they sound <laughs> legitimate to me. They sound too legit to quit, too to legit, be honest. Too legit to quit. Hey, hey. Also, you know, I'm a uh, I'm an Oscar snob and each of these movies received an Academy Award nomination. They so, did. Yes, the first one for... received a nomination for costumes, I believe. Yes, and the second one received a nomination for set design. Cool. And Angelica Houston was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. Good for her. For her role as Morticia Adams. She's quite good in it. <laughs> yes, she is. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. Uh, what, what uh, Are the Adams family scary, Carla? What is your experience with this particular family? They're macabre. They're ghoulish. Yeah, I don't think they're scary. I just think that they're Halloween-y. They're ghoulish. They're spooky. Altogether ooky. Um, altogether ooky. Um, funny, too. They're funny. I mean, these were good picks for Halloween. They're they're the perfect yeah. light, but dark enough. Though I think, you know, we'll get into this as we dissect these movies a little bit. The second one, which I had never seen, was way darker than I would even imagine could be possible. Yeah. It's great. I, I So I've been posting... Um, I've been trying to every day posting on my Instagram. If you want to follow me at Carla Kukowski, uh, I've been posting what we've been watching. And I would say that the Adams Family Values, so the sequel, had more people DMing me than any other movie we've watched yet this month. Really? People were excited that we we're doing Adams yes. Family Values. People love it and they wanted to let me know how much they love it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely saw the first one when it came out. Probably the week it was released, 1991. I think it came out in the summer, so I would have just graduated college at the time. I remember like thinking it was fine, um, maybe being a little snobby about it, maybe thinking that it was you know, an adaptation of an old TV show that I didn't remember that well, though I certainly watched it as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was fun but forgettable was my take on it. And then I've never revisited it in the 30 years since. And I had never seen Adam's Family Values. Uh, and spoilers ahead, uh, I was delighted by both of these movies. Benny, stop it. You little bitch. <laughs> Fucking relax. Lay the fuck down and chill the fuck out. Sit. Good boy. Just chill, man. I wish I had your life. Okay, I'm leaving all of that in. <laughs> but I'm going to cut the reference to Benny so it sounds like you're talking to me. Um, my... Yeah, my memory of seeing these movies is just from being a kid and probably getting them on VHS. Maybe, you don't think you saw them in the theater? Maybe we saw them in the theater. I I don't have a memory of it. You would have been 11 and 13 when yeah. these came out. I don't remember, but I do know that I've seen both of them and I don't I wouldn't say they were on a regular rotation at my house, but we definitely watched them multiple times. You're pretty much the exact age as Christina Ricci. So. I am. Yeah, we're the same age. So, uh, Wednesday Adams would have been a, a role model for you. Yes. And she was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, the cast of these movies is is pretty great. So you have Raul Julia as Gomez Adams. You have Angelica Houston as Morticia. Uh, Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester, or maybe not Uncle Fester in the first mm-hmm. movie. You have uh, Wednesday Adams is, uh, of course, Christina Ricci. You have Carol Striken, the Moonlight Man from Gerald's Game as yeah. Lurch. And Grandmama was played by a different actress in the in those two movies. It was Judith Molina in the first one and changed to Carol Kane for the second one. And I really could not get a straight answer on why Grandmama was recast. You did some research and couldn't find it? Couldn't find anything on it. I did find out that Judith Molina, by the <laughs> way, is the was the co-founder of what was the theater with uh with Julian Beck? Uh, like a, a very important experimental theater in New York, the Living Theater. Hmm. Uh, and so she was mostly known as a stage actress, and but she played Al Pacino's mom in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, which Carol Kane also is in Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> oddly enough, uh, there is a quote from Angelica Houston on Judith Molina that says. The she had the the way she, uh, that she had of enduring being embedded in latex for over twelve hours a day was to smoke an endless series of joints in her trailer throughout filming. <laughs> <laughs> so may, maybe Judith Molina, uh, who was more of a true stage artist, did not feel like getting embedded in latex yeah. for another movie, or maybe they just went for a bigger name and kind of enjoyed maybe the taxi reunion of getting Christopher Lloyd and Carol Kane together again. Who knows. Who knows? They're both great in different ways. I thought so, too. I liked Uh, both of their performances. I think. Um, Both of these movies directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, The first movie was his directorial debut. He was... (laughs) Okay, Benny is humping a pillow now. (laughs) (laughs) He did not take that note from Carla. He went the other way with it and is just being uh, blatantly disobedient now. You're being disgusting. <laughs> uh, it really is the ultimate horror is what Benny is doing I right have to now. get rid of that throw pillow for real. <laughs> I'm never using that throw pillow. I don't use it. I just keep it in the corner. Benny uses it Ugh. for his own purposes. <laughs> You're cutting all this out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was planning on leaving it in. Oh, God. Uh, what's your take on the cast of, uh, the Adam Shaley movies, Carla? My take on them? Yes. They're all wonderful. Raul Julia is inspired, I would say. He's like next level. He is like way better than anybody would have to be to do this role, but I bet he's a big part of what elevates this. He's just so committed and seeming like he's really enjoying it. And you can't help but get swept up in his performance. And apparently, and this is somebody who had such a distinguished stage career as well as like done a number of great serious movies. My favorite performance uh, from him in a movie might be his role as Harrison Ford's attorney in Presumed Innocent. He's just great in that. But apparently Gomez was the role he was proudest of that uh, that he ever did. You know, it's John Astin in the original series. 
Gomez is such a weird first name, first of all. Mm-hmm. And I guess there there is some sort of explanation that Gomez is of Castilian descent okay. in the TV show. But certainly John Astin is not playing it Latino or, or anything, which is probably good. Right, right. Um, and apparently when they dubbed the original series into Spanish... Uh, because Gomez is a last name. It was such a weird first name. In the Spanish version, uh, he was Homero, a.k.a. Homer. Oh, weird. <laughs> Homer Adams, which is uh, another uh, famous first name in, in sitcoms. Um, Who? Uh, Homer Flintstone, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, he's just amazing. That whole speech that he does... Uh, when he says he's going to defend himself in court, you know, I am that fool. Yes. He's incredible. Is so great. (laughs) And we lost him way too soon. He died the year after Family Values. And I don't think you can really tell that he's sick, but maybe, you know, maybe he's like 10% less energy in the sequel. Apparently he was just in really bad shape uh, shooting that movie. He had had stomach cancer for a few years and he eventually passed of a stroke. He was only 54 years old. So it's really sad. The, the roles that we never got to see Raul Julia do, but we have these two movies for forever and he's fantastic Mm -hmm. in them. Uh, and way to make me cry, Craig (laughs) and Angelica Houston, who we shit on for the witches really (laughs) redeemed herself. These two movies. I really love Angelica Houston in general. So that was a bummer for me to dislike the witches. Yeah, I mean, maybe Miss Cast or maybe the witches was just not working in conception at all. But she's absolutely fantastic as Morticia. Like, yeah. I can't imagine anybody else in the role. Yeah, it was weird going back and watching the TV show and just being like, "Ugh, this lady is a nothing compared to." Oh, really? I think. I mean, Carolyn Jones, I think, is pretty good in the TV show. It was it was weird watching the TV show in general. But they're not like playing characters. It just I don't want to say that she's a bad actor because I'm not familiar with her work. But um, like Angelica Houston and Raul Julia are so clearly portraying characters yeah. that fit into that world and, it and feels, archetypes. Yeah, and it feels like on the sitcom, the actors are just like being themselves with wigs and a suit. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's fair. I mean, it was fun to watch the original series just because it did kind of conjure up those feelings of being a kid watching it in syndication. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, it's also kind of lame in the way that all old sitcoms are. Like every episode has the exact same plot, which is like some normie has to come to the Adams family mansion and deal with them and they find them weird and scary. Right. <laughs> but actually they're, they're pretty harmless. Yeah, and the performances are all pretty straightforward, but the character design, you know, certainly is iconic because that's what people have taken up, you know, mm-hmm. in, in every iteration of it. Uh, amazingly to me, the Adams family only lasted two years on TV, though they did shoot 64 episodes in two years. Wow. I guess the sitcom orders were just way bigger back then. And I was like, well, the Munsters was around longer, right? Nope. The Munsters was also only played two seasons and they shot 70 episodes in two seasons. Wow. For but that. that's when like they would just shoot first drafts of stuff. <laughs> Clearly. Yes. Yeah. Like they did. They're not agonizing over no, each script here. They weren't having writer's room go until two, two in the morning or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's a little cookie cutter. Yeah. Certainly. But as a kid, I mean, I loved, what did I love? I loved Lurch, Thing, and Cousin It. Yeah. You know, just the weird stuff that was going on uh, on the edges a little bit. 
Lurch is so interesting in the TV show too because he's like actually got a personality. He seems like annoyed with them. <laughs> yes. Well, his his catchphrase is "You rang." Yeah. Uh, does he and, even say that in any of the movies? No, no. The, this Lurch does not speak at all, right? I don't. I don't recall. No. no. Uh, and apparently Ted Cassidy, who was that actor, who I think was seven feet tall, like Carol Stryker, who's about the same size, he apparently improvised that. He had not been given any dialogue, and he improvised a you rang on the pilot, and then oh, they, they kept it. funny. So, you know, those improv classes pay off, people. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you don't have any lines, just throw one in. Directors love that. Yeah, it's really going to get you hired again and again. <laughs> so that might be the exception that proves the rule. Also, it's interesting on the series, the dynamic is definitely that Morticia is the lead character and Gomez is a little more deferential to her. Mm. And it felt like in the cartoon that we watched where it's Oscar Isaac and Charlize Theron that they kind of repeated that dynamic a little bit where Gomez is a little more of a schlub. Yeah. And I really like them as kind of equals you feel like they're both kind of head of household together. It really feels like an equal partnership. They feel equally in love. I mean, you you can't cast Raul Julia as a schlub, you know, right. like he's such like an outsized personality and he's just, he's just a big dynamic guy. So it really works for the movie. I think making them more of an equal partnership. I agree. The, but I think it goes back to the original Charles Adams cartoons. Uh, Adams was a, a Worked for the New Yorker and had this famously macabre style. And he had been drawing these people for, I think, 20 or 30 years by the time the TV series premiered. Wow. And he had never named them in any of the cartoons. So a lot of the names were decided on for the TV show. So Gomez was a suggestion of, of Charles Adams. The baby in Adams Family Values is Pubert, <laughs> 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 which is I, – I don't – think is on the top of anybody's baby names, but uh, but apparently it was between Pugsley and Pubert for the TV show, and they settled on Pugsley, so wow. they recycled Pubert for the uh, for the sequel movie. That's great. And then there's Pugsley is a really funny name too. Pugsley's pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Then there's other things like whose family is Fester in and whose family is Grandmama in, yeah. and apparently that reversed from the TV show to the first movie. So in the TV show, Fester is Morticia's uncle, right? Yes. Yes. And Grandmama is Gomez's mother. But in the TV show. In the TV show. But in the movie, there's a line about Grandpa and Grandma Adams having died or, or by an angry mob killed them or something right. like that. Uh, so clearly she's, uh, she's Morticia's mom in that. And apparently when they did the musical on Broadway where Jackie Hoffman played the grandma, uh, there's a line where Gomez says of like, and then my mother, uh, you know, came to join us and never left. And Morticia's like, I thought she was my mother <laughs> <laughs> or like your mother and my mother. That's funny. Uh, so it kind of like makes a joke out of the, the retconning of the, uh, of the biography throughout the history of the, uh, grandmama. The Grandmama. Well, let's go through these movies a little bit with a segment that we like to call Carla's Quotes. <laughs> She's feeling her oats and Craig's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's Quotes. <laughs> you sound so excited about it. <clears throat> <sighs> I have a little bit of a cold. Sorry. I sound weird. Uh, do you need to get a test? No. 
It's allergies. It's not even a cold. I just said that. Not it's even a cold. It's allergies. <laughs> okay. You did get a COVID test pretty recently. And I'm so negative. That was weird that it said so negative. <laughs> they were like, you are so negative. I think it was just talking about your personality, not your test results. <laughs> I got to get a COVID test on Monday because I'm shooting a commercial on Tuesday. Ooh. Don't want to jinx it. Bragger. But I'm putting it out there. Here's something that totally makes sense that uh, didn't occur to me, but Tim Burton passed on this movie. But of course... I 100% thought that when I was watching. I was like, there's no way that this wasn't offered to Tim Burton first. Yes, because he'd be just coming off of Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, yeah. right? And I mean, it's his sensibility to a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, but I guess he was doing Batman Returns mm. at the time and couldn't do it. And maybe he also thought, this is maybe too on the nose for me, right? <laughs> But as the credits start for this, Carlo, who I think is nervously kind of looking over at me of like, am I going to like this or not? Carlo's like, Barry Sonnenfeld's a good director, right? Right? (laughs) (laughs) And he is. He did the Men in Black trilogy. I I enjoy those films. He did Wild Wild West, which is not so great. Yeah. But he was was a great cinematographer before he was a director. He did the first three Coen movies. That's so insane to me. So all that famous moving camera in... Blood Simple and Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. That's all Barry Sonnenfeld. And he kind of picks up on that style throughout this. And it just works perfectly for the Adams Family. But Barry Sonnenfeld also did Big for Penny Marshall. And he also shot a movie that we kind of alluded to in the last episode, Misery, for Rob oh. Reiner. But uh, I think the whole thing of like following Thing, who's just a disembodied hand, mm-hmm. you know, with, with Barry Sonnenfeld's moving mm-hmm. camera is kind of a staple of these movies. And it's so fun. Really well done. The cold open, by the way, is straight out of the Charles Adams New Yorker cartoons, which is them pouring bore, boiling oil on Christmas carolers, right? Yeah. That are, that are down below. Why do you think it's oil and not water? Oh, it's boiling, certainly. But I think oil is the thing from like old, you know, medieval times, right? That's what they would pour on, you know, oh. the villagers or the, the opposing army who was attacking the castle. Got it. They'd pour oil on them. Uh, I wrote this is straight up Carla's Alley. I, I don't know that I'm citing anything uh, to support my, my thesis there, but is this, is this straight up your alley? Yeah, it's really fun. Um, it puts me in the mood for Halloween. And for lovemaking. <laughs> it's a real aphrodisiac for me. <laughs> I mean, certainly they seem like they've got a pretty hot hot sex life. <laughs> Gomez and Morticia. I mean, there's so many one-liners in both of these movies. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I, I love airplane and, you know, naked gun movies. But there's always a hit and miss ratio when you hinge your movie on so many one-liners. But... This might have one of the – both of these movies might have one of the highest percentages of one-liners landing. Mm-hmm. And especially because you're going to the same well over and over, particularly for Morticia and Wednesday, mm-hmm. right? You know, But they're, so, they're such well-written jokes. Yeah. Uh, even, th- you know, just things like unhappy darling, completely. You know, <laughs> like that, that's like out of the gates right away. Um. Paul Rudnick wrote Adam's Family Values and apparently was a ghostwriter on the first one. Okay. And it feels like it definitely has his voice. What even. else has he done? Well, I, he's famous as a playwright like I Hate Hamlet and Jeffrey. And he wrote tons of stuff for uh, for Bette Midler. 
Uh, like he developed sister act with her, uh, as we talked about on the Hocus Pocus, Pocus episode. And then I guess took his name off the script after it ended up changing. Um, and I think he wrote First Wives Club. Okay. He used to have a column in Premiere Magazine under an alias Libby Gelman Wexler. Oh, weird. Uh, who was... And, and he writes like humor pieces for the New Yorker. He just has a very kind of specific gay Sarcasm. New York sarcastic yeah. theater voice, you know, yeah. that I think fits the sensibility of of this movie. I think all the jokes work so well because all of the characters are so well defined. Like every character in the Adams family family <laughs> has like their own specific thing going on. And yeah, and so every time they say something, it's not just a joke. It's like another revelation of character. And I think that that's what makes it work so well. And then just contrasting them with normal people, like, always so is going to work. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's an example of their character every time that they say something. It's on game, to put it in improv terms, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's very consistent. If I have a complaint about the first movie... I just think the plot with Fester is unnecessarily convoluted to me. Hmm. So in this movie, Uncle Fester is supposedly dead. And then they find a lookalike guy. Uh, the villains are played by Dan Hedaya and Elizabeth Wilson in this. And they're trying to, what, get the Adams family fortune. Yeah. And so they're the, she has this. Uh, adopted son who looks a lot like Uncle Fester. But we don't know he's adopted until the end. No, that, I mean, that's why I'm saying that it's kind of a convoluted mm-hmm. plot. And so it's left kind of ambiguous throughout the movie of whether he is Fester or not. And then, of course, he, it turns out that he really is, that he had gone missing. This woman found him, and that's why he looks exactly like that distinctive. Did you know he was going to really be Fester? I felt like he had to be like that's such an unsatisfying ending like to have to welcome this gangster like stranger into their lives and then just pretend that he's fester. But did you think that? I thought yeah, I thought that would be the reveal okay. at the end. But even that it's kind of an afterthought of a reveal. Apparently Barry Sonnenfeld wanted it to be left ambiguous mm. and the cast really wanted Christopher Lloyd to be the real fester and apparently Christina Ricci spoke for the cast what? representing them and made an impassioned plea to Barry Sonnenfeld to make it clear that it's the real fester at the end. At least that's the story. Weird. So this how old was she like she 10 would have been year old? 10 or 11, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth Wilson, who's the, the villain in this, do you remember what Craigslist movies she was in? No, but I thought she must have been because she had a familiar voice. Okay. So she's Benjamin Braddock's mother in The Graduate. She is mm. Charles Van Doren's mother in Quiz Show. Mm. But then she's also in one of your favorite movies, also as the villain. Who? Or as a villain. She's Roz in 9 to 5. Oh. I don't remember. Who's kind of like the bitchy office manager. Oh, funny. And then Dan had Her voice is so great. It's like such a villain voice. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the second movie ups the villain game considerably. Like the the actors are fine in the the first one, uh, but Joan Cusack is the villain and she's incredible in in the second one. What were you going to say about Dan Hedaya? Well, Dan Hedaya, of course, is Nick Tortelli on Cheers. Uh, He was Richard Nixon and Dick. He's the villain in Coen Brothers' Blood Simple. He's in First Wives Club, too. Yeah. As an asshole? 
Yeah. Like you see him in a movie, you know he's up to no good. He's Bette Midler's uh, philandering husband. Yeah. The only role they ever had where he wasn't like an out-and-out bad guy was Cher's father in Clueless, right? Oh, yeah. He had a great career. He did have a great career. Is he still alive? I believe he is. Good for him. Yeah. Um, we just watched the MC Hammer video to Adam's Groove, which was, <laughs> for some reason, a top 10 hit. Yeah. I remember dancing to it. Really? At school dances? Yeah. Uh, it's not great, even by MC it's Hammer standards. Really not. It doesn't hold up well. It's very much a time capsule of that specific year. Though the video was clearly shot at the same time they shot the movie, right? Because the actors are in it, like, in costume and, yeah. and everything. Uh, I wrote, they appear to live in the Hollywood Hills. Is that right? Or is it's is it left ambiguous as to where they are? You know why? It's because when they have to go and they leave their house, they're driving um, down they're driving down hills that look like the Hollywood Hills. It does look like the Hollywood, yeah. which of course is where they shot it, I'm sure. But I, yeah, I don't know if they mean for it to be the Hollywood Hills yeah. or if whatever. This movie was a ginormous hit, by the way. On a $30 million budget, it made $191 million worldwide. Wow. And I guess it had kind of a difficult development process. Orion was developing it, ended up selling it to Paramount. Uh, but they really made a fortune. This is what the world needed in 1991. I guess Apparently so. it was an Adams Family movie. Yeah. Desert Storm had just happened. <laughs> <laughs> it feels so old. But then apparently the world did not need Adams Family values uh, as much because that was that it kind of just made back its money and then they they didn't make any more. Yeah, that's after that. That's pretty strange to me because I think that the second one's stronger than the first one, though I enjoyed the first one. Yeah. Uh when they have maybe one of the best scenes is Pugsley in Wednesday's school play. Yes. Uh, which is just a bloodbath of like limbs being cut off and just spurting blood. Fester has, has helped them put their um, scene together. Yes. What is it called? Sparring scene? Yeah. What is that called? Fencing. Yes. Fencing. They're fencing. Sparring. Sparring. They're sparring with, with fencing swords. It's so funny. <laughs> Carla said for that, this is the best part. <laughs> she also enjoyed the mamushka, which is the big <laughs> dance between Gomez and Fester. Carla said, ha, ah, so cute. I wrote, Raul Julia did not need to invest so much in this, but it pays off. It does. He's so invested. <laughs> it's so good. I kind of feel like when they dispense with the Fester plot for a little bit, some of the best jokes are in the, like, last act of the movie as they have to leave their house and re-enter the workforce. Yeah. Like all those scenes are so funny. Well, I think that's because that's the original concept, right? Even of the TV show, which yeah. is putting these people in the real world. Yeah. I mean, it's tough for any of these like rebooting things because you have to like pay homage to the original source material right. and like for the old fans, but you also have to be introduce the world a little bit to younger people. Yeah. Uh, you made a good argument that this feels like the right blend uh, of what a family movie should have, which is like stuff for the adults and kids in equal measure. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of shocked by some of the stuff. I'm not really shocked because I'm, I'm in comedy. 
You know, <laughs> like I can't really be offended or shocked, but I just, as somebody who was, did not see this at the time, to see it through 2020 eyes, what they were doing in 1993, it's very edgy. Yeah. I think, but I, I felt like you made a good compelling argument of, uh, family movies used to be this a little more where there was darker stuff in there. It's maybe indicative of how we are more puritanical as a society now mm-hmm. and also maybe how corporations who bankroll these movies are so afraid to offend parents maybe that it right. ends up being so lukewarm and anodyne. I mean, and like the whole idea of helicopter parenting is, you know, all post this era of filmmaking and like just parents over uh, overly concerned i'm not a parent i'm not judging i'm just saying oh perhaps overly concerned about the content that their children are (laughs) digesting i don't know uh like even your sister wouldn't let your niece and nephew watch certain movies until they were like 15 or 16 yeah and i was watching Freddy Krueger at eight years old. Well, this is documented. This is documented on this podcast of how much inappropriate shit <laughs> you were watching. Uh, but I do think like it's fun to be, and I, I do, I guess they still talk about this, but the idea of the whole family going to the movie and enjoying it together. But now, I don't know. Like, what are the, um, like Toy Story and. Yeah, I mean, I think Pixar generally does a pretty good job of stuff, but. They're not, they're not pushing the envelope to the degree that Adam's Family Values does. Right. Oh, so you're talking specifically about Adam's Family Values. I, that's what really inspired the comment, but even the first one is, is edgier than you would yeah. think, you know. I will say that watching this in 2020, probably not having seen it since they came out, um, or, you know, within a couple of years of them coming out, there was way less offensive things than I was expecting. Meaning like off color jokes or inappropriate. There was one, one round of like, that seems racist. Yes. In family values. At the summer camp. Yeah. But I kind of have an argument for why it works. Okay. Which is that, so, so like all the kids of color at this camp are basically considered like the nerdy kids. Like when they, they scan the the crowd of kids and they're like showing you the popular kids and it's all these like white, um, Tokens of various kinds. Yeah. And then so then they were like, here are the kids who are in trouble or who are the nerdy kids. And it's like the black kid and, you know, whatever. But then those kids all beat the shit out of all the other kids later. (laughs) So it's kind of a nice payoff. It wasn't it didn't feel just like a one joke at the expense of, you know, of those kids. It felt like it was giving them the opportunity to show low status that when they took high status, it felt like, oh, yeah, they're going to get them. <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of momentarily cringy as Christine Baranski was was doing it, like not being able to pronounce Jamal or whatever. Yes. It just felt like kind of cheap. It was. You know? You're right. You're, you're totally right. I'm not saying it wasn't racist, but uh, but it's uh, – it, w- it wouldn't be done now. It wouldn't be done now, yeah. But – Watching it in the context of the movie, it does pay off for those characters as they get their revenge on the perfectly blonde cheerleader types who are running the camp. Right. Yeah. So I could go either way. Yeah. I mean, certainly it's not. Yeah. It's not the best part of the movie. (laughs) Uh, Just a couple more things on the first movie, though. Uh, I mean, to me, the two best jokes are in like the last 15 minutes of the movie, which is 
uh, Morticia telling Hansel and Gretel from the point of view of the witch and all the kindergartners crying together. Yeah. So, like, she's gotten a job as a as a preschool teacher. Yes. I think is the idea. It doesn't matter. It's like a thirty second scene, yeah. but it just works as like it's a little so skit. Yeah. You know? So she's telling the yeah telling the fairy tale from the the witch's point of view. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, is that limited? Is that lemonade made from real lemons? You know, and then the girl trying to sell her the Girl Scout cookies. Are they made from real Girl Scouts? Yeah. I mean, it's just an all timer one liner, uh, but delivered by Christina Ricci, you know, just elevates it like even further. I mean, talk about an incredible child actor because we have. <laughs> We've talked about several. Yeah. Like she's just one of the greatest of all time. I'm a homicidal maniac. They look like everybody else in justifying her Halloween costume, yes. which is nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'll go so far as that Christina Ricci's Wednesday Adams is one of the greatest comic creations in movies that I can think of. Yes. A few years ago, a comedian, and I forget her name, she did a bunch of sketches as an adult Wednesday Adams. <laughs> And if you are listening to this and you can go Google it, I hope they're still online. I know she got in trouble at one point and had to take them down. For like copyright violation? Yeah, but then I think she got them put back up. And they're so funny because it's like Wednesday, adult Wednesday Adams trying to um, – she's like interviewing to be a new roommate in an apartment. Or an adult Wednesday Adams trying to get a job. Oh, it's so good. And certainly she's kind of – Prepubescent in the first one, so she's got the adorability factor going too. Right. So this little girl delivering these one-liners, and then she's a little more of a teen, probably thirteen, when she shot the second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both iterations kind of work for me. Like the older Wednesday at camp, you know, you see her just kind of struggling with, you know, being a teenager, yeah, uh, as well. And then she's she has equally good jokes in that. So that's the first one. We've kind of teased family values a bit, but the basic plot of that is Fester, who is now, you know, confirmed as the real Fester, uh, is being pursued by a black widow played by Joan Cusack, who just wants him for his money and is planning on killing him. Unfortunately, Fester cannot be killed. Yeah. (laughs) And he also loves being tortured. He loves it. So it doesn't work out. It really feels like. This movie feels sitcom-y, not in a bad way, in that there's a distinct A plot, B plot, and C plot, Mm -hmm. which is, it feels like maybe Fester and Joan Cusack is the A plot, the kids at summer camp is the B plot, and the arrival of the new baby, Pubert, is the C plot. Yes, good. Breaking it down, Craig. And it kind of cuts between those those three stories, really, until they kind of intersect Mm -hmm. at the end. Um, Yeah, I mean... the. I, I couldn't believe some of the stuff they're getting away with in this movie. It was rated PG-13 for macabre humor, <laughs> which I think was literally what the the ratings board gave it, which doesn't seem like that's a very common category. Right. You know, it's like it's, there's not really sex. There's not really violence. But there's a tone of that all throughout just kind of like in this very coded macabre. Yeah. Way. it's There's some sexual stuff for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think that's the thing is that it was way more sexual than, than I thought, you know, particularly yeah. like Fester losing his virginity. You right. know, it doesn't get explicit about that, but it kind of hints at like what is to come. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the voice of this is just different 
in some ways that are literal. Like I feel like Christopher Lloyd kind of changed the Fester voice a little bit. He did, yeah. Which I get because if he's so obviously Fester in the first one, then it kind of blows the whole is he or isn't he plot. Mm. You know, so it feels like he buys a little more into the original Jackie Coogan voice from the the show, you know, which is a little more raspy. Gravelly, yeah. And Carol Kane is now Granny, which changes that a little bit too. Um, Christina Ricci is older, right. you know, but then that, that Paul Rednick voice, it kind of feels like it's a drag show in 1993, New York, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't say that in a bad way. I think like, it really works for the, the tone yeah, it's really fun. of the, of the movie. There's a nice balance in the second one of them in their own world with people in that world and then them in the real world. Whereas in the first one, it feels like more sections of like you know they're just in their own world and then we get 10 minutes of them in the real world or whatever it's always weird to see a 1993 movie where there's people who aren't really big names yet popping up in really small parts Mm -hmm. which includes nathan lane cynthia nixon tony shalhoub yeah were certainly not household names at that moment though they were recognizable actors Mm -hmm. maybe that was the same year as the birdcage i don't know but i feel like nathan lane was not widely known right then, um, I love the idea of Fester being on the cover of Forbes <laughs> because he's like a multimillionaire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just the idea that Forbes would do a story on him. It's weird that Fester is the main character in both of these movies, or like the plot at least revolves around him. Yeah. When he's not in the TV show at all, right? No, he's very much a side character. Yeah. yeah. I'll say this. People love Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he's Doc Brown. Of course. Right? I know who he is. He's Professor Plum. I know who he is. He's uh, Jim Ignatowski. Who's that? <laughs> Taxi. But even so, I feel like Christopher Lloyd is kind of underrated in like all-time comic actors. I mean, he's just great. He probably chose to stop acting, right? Yeah. I mean, we just don't see him in stuff uh, as much anymore. I mean, he's probably set for life based on the stuff that he did. Right. But I I just think along with all the other performers that I'm uh, praising, like he just has a really specific look and physicality as as Fester. It's just another great performance, which is different from other stuff that he's done. I just You wouldn't think of him as Fester. Like if you're casting Fester – Christopher Lloyd isn't somebody you would think of. Because he's kind of lean and tall and yeah. Fester's fat. Right? Yeah. So he's he's wearing a fat suit for for this. Uh just his facial expressions are so yeah. so great. Carla said it's kind of sexual for a kid's movie. <laughs> um there are a couple of jokes in in the sequel that uh that are maybe a little too much of the time. There's an Amy Fisher reference, which I think is kind of a groaner now, or at least puzzling to anybody who's not familiar with the Mary Jo Buttafuoco story of like that. I just feel like the Adams family is kind of evergreen and choosing some jokes that place it directly in 1993. Yeah. Like an odd choice. So it's a reference to George Bush in the first one, which also felt weird. (laughs) Um, but then, and unless I was reading it wrong, it feels like there's definitely a Michael Jackson molestation joke. There is. How did that play for you? I mean, I don't know if they meant it as a molestation joke. I'm not totally sure. 
Oh, he was supposed to write a song for the second one, and I guess they pulled out because that's when some of the first allegations against him were first becoming public. Yikes. So, yeah, it very much was part of the cultural conversation at the time in 1993. So, Yeah, it seems like bad taste to do that, but it is really – it's like shockingly funny (laughs) when it happens. Yeah. There's also a moment where they're going to play uh, the Wednesday and Pugsley and their little friend at camp who's played by David Crumholtz, who's very young at the time. Uh, they're going to get them in the spirit of wanting to do uh, a camp musical. So they're like, we're going to make you watch a, watch a bunch of Disney things. And it's obvious that they did not have any rights to play yeah. Any Disney music or show any Disney images. So they play Sound of Music. And Brady Bunch <laughs> and Annie. Yeah. Which I, I get it. It's all, you know, consistent of like those are things that they might have watched. But because right. they're, they're such a big payoff to, oh, no, Disney. And then it's not Disney. Yeah. At all. Why don't you pick out more things you didn't like about it? <laughs> well, here's, here's maybe the darkest joke in this is that Fester's bachelor party. They're waiting for the girl to pop out of the cake. <laughs> Gomez is like, oh, Fester. Uh, oh, wait, you didn't, you didn't put her in the oven with her in it, did you? <laughs> they, killed, they killed the girl in the cake by baking it. That's so funny, though. Oh. It's almost a little like. I mean, it's very dark. It's very. That, that to me, is the darkest joke <laughs> in it, right? <laughs> Because they're obsessed with death and they're macabre, but of like that might be the only time where they've overtly like killed killed, killed an innocent. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost a little like Babe and Babe Pig in the City, which is way darker and weirder than the first Babe. Do you know what? I've never seen either of those movies. What? Neither of them. So a kids' movie from the nineties that I'm more familiar with than Carla is. I was a teen when that came out. You were too cool for Babe? I was too cool for Babe. Uh, I love... No, I meant to see it, and I never did. They're both great. They're both great. But the second one is is definitely weirder and darker. Um, But yeah, like you said, that payoff for that sequence at camp, and also just the fact that they're doing like a Pocahontas story is also kind of sketchy. In the middle of summer, it's like a Thanksgiving Pocahontas yeah. story. Well, it's Peter McNichol explains that like it's his tribute to the first Thanksgiving or whatever. It is uh, explained a little bit, you know. It's so weird, but then it really pays off, I think. Again, like I don't know if they mean for it to pay off in the way that it does now through the lens of 2020, but the fact that all of the – Kids playing the Native Americans then, like, set the set on fire is amazing. I mean, just as an action sequence and as a comedy sequence and as an arc to, like, get out of the summer camp subplot, like, it's it's great. It's just so elaborate. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're just setting fires everywhere. <laughs> I think this is when Carla said, this is very satisfying. <laughs> uh, I wrote they have to top the bloodbath from the first movie, right? right? So that they, yeah. they have to go beyond that somehow. And, oh, yes. They do. I got to mention the way they light Angelica Houston, I think mostly just in the second it's incredible. movie, right? Yeah. She has a key light that illuminates the top half of her face while leaving like a perfect, uh, what is that? Crescent shape. Crescent shape parabola. Mm. Perfect parabola of darkness on the bottom half of her face. 
But just knowing how lighting works on set, that must have taken so much. They must have had so many takes that they had to scrap because that lighting wasn't perfect there. But it's so awesome. And then they were like, don't move, Angelica. You have to say your lines from this exact spot. (laughs) At one point, a thing that, which is just a disembodied hand, rescues Fester and is driving the car. And I'm like, how is Thing working the gas? And Carla said, that's what you're going to get caught up on? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, let's talk about Joan Cusack as the villain in this. She's so perfection. It's just another great comedic performance. And she really is, uh, she's a good match for the Adams family. She is. I almost, when she's giving the speech at the end, when she's talking about how she bumped off all of her husbands, I almost wanted her to then be accepted into the family because she's a murderer, <laughs> right, right? You right. know? Well, and they do kind of accept her killing them. They're even yes. like, oh, you're right. I, we do feel bad for you. Luckily, the family has seven electric chairs just lying around yeah. that they can all be tied into. <laughs> But then Pubert saves the day. Pubert. Pretty adorable kid. So great. And Carlos, Carlos said it's like a Chucky doll. <laughs> One of my favorite jokes is when um, he's like feeling the trauma the family's going through and they look into his crib and he ha- he's grown these blonde curls and has rosy cheeks and they just start screaming. <laughs> <laughs> that the baby is sick. Yeah. It's really funny. Because he comes out, you know. From from the womb with a mustache. <laughs> the role of the little boy Pubert, by the way, played by two twin girls. Mm. But they draw a little mustache uh, on her. and It's pretty cute. She's just adorable. But then Debbie gets electrocuted and turns into a pile of dust. Yeah. And then the final touch is her credit cards fall down <laughs> into the pile of dust. And Carla said, awesome. Uh, Joan, Joan Cusack is such a, and I don't think she's underrated. I think everybody loves her. Um, I wish she worked more. I know that she has a real life that she likes to do with kids and stuff in Chicago, but still she's so great and she's not at all an obvious choice for this. No. Uh, yeah, I feel like so many movies in this vein where there's like the, the woman who comes in and tries to marry the dad and it's like the stepmom or whatever. It's always like a very specific type of like blonde vixen or whatever. And Joan Cusack is a blonde vixen in this, but like she's, she's dyed her hair and she's like playing a character. She know? has a natural sweetness about her and her normal persona that, that works very well for this character, especially yeah. when she turns evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's inspired casting. I think it is. I thought of another, another Paul Rudnick movie, which is in and out uh, with Kevin Klein, which I want to see again. Which Joan Cusack got an Oscar nomination I for, know. for that. Okay. Well, I guess I can't school Carla on Joan Cusack. Uh, though I did work with her on my first TV job. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sitcom called What About Joan that shot in Chicago. I know. Okay. My first TV credit. I know. And my last. Um, was there a character named Dementia? Yes. Who is Dementia. Well, I think it's a reveal. Is it a family member or something? Who's dementia? Anyway, I think it's at the end of the movie and Carla said she's from the witches. <laughs> that it looked more like a traditional witch. Oh, oh no, it was somebody who was bald, right? Yeah, it was someone who was bald. Yes. Um, just somebody in a bald cap. Which Oh, it was it was fast the setup for Fester's New Love. That's right, Fester's New Love. The other weird thing in both of the movies is that the woman who falls in love with cousin it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I Mary's love the- that. I no, I love that. <laughs> that is such a fun choice because she's married to Dan Hedaya in the first film. Yeah, and she hates the Adams. And then she meets cousin It, and she falls in love with him. And they he's have just a, baby a sexual it. dynamo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's such a funny like that actress is so funny too. Yeah, she's from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. She's one of the women that oh, they yeah. con in in that. Um, I also meant to mention the writers, the credited writers of the first movie are Carolyn Thompson and Larry Wilson, who wrote separately. Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. So that also seems consistent with the whole Tim Burton thing. Carla, do you want to give the Adams family a letter grade? A minus. I give it a B plus. Okay. And what about family values? I would give that an A. I give it an A minus. Okay. So just a notch below you, but I really. Like normal, just a notch below. I really was delighted by both of these movies, and I could see me watching both of them every Halloween. Wow. And maybe every Christmas. Wow. Do we have a thing we do now? I think this is our thing. Watching the Addams Family movies? No, this is our thing. This disembodied hand that's going around doing tasks for us. (laughs) That, by the way, that guy is a magician, and I mean, obviously it's... I don't know what the status of CGI was at the time. I think it's more like practical things where they just had to cut the rest of his body out of it. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a giant guy with giant hands and like, it's pretty impressive handwork. It is. He feels like he's fully inhabited that character. Carly, you want to do a Did little, you hear what I said, uh, he equally embodied that character. Nope. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you look to your computer, I'm like, he's not listening to me. I can multitask. Uh, Carla, do you want to do a little khaki theater and improvise a scene about the Adams family? Sure. Well, what's going on in COVID times for the Adams family? <laughs> okay. Tish, Tish, uh, Lurch has brought back the groceries. Oh, good. I'm ready to eat it off your naked body, Gomez. <laughs> Ah, Caramia. Yes, yes, all all in due time. First, first, the wilted lettuce. Delicious. The uh, the bag of uh, tortilla chips that a mouse has gotten into and eaten all of them. Crunchy. But should we wipe it down for coronavirus? No, let's let the virus live. Hey, everyone, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to a Trump rally. <laughs> Uh, let me give you some, uh, some, uh, witch's brew for that. No masks. I'm not wearing any masks. You don't have to wear a mask. Let me just make this little witch's brew for you and you'll be all set. I love it. I love it. Nobody's social distancing. We're all close together. Herd immunity. Oh, my brother Fester, a noted Republican from way back. (laughs) I hate Republicans. Oh, Wednesday, of course, is very active (laughs) online now. Uh, Tell me, dear, are you trolling people? Yes, I'm trolling people by being nice to them. Weird. Weird. That doesn't sound like you at all. That's how you troll. Okay, I... uh... I started out doing more of a Latin accent, but now I'm just doing full Transylvanian. Is that cool? (laughs) (laughs) Same. I 
I'm so sorry. I said I hate Republicans. I don't know what happened. We famously do not take a political stance on this podcast. <laughs> sure we do. Vote Biden. <laughs> uh, we're only a few days away from the election. And uh, yes, please vote for Biden-Harris. Because <laughs> we don't want four more years of horror. Spooky. Carla, what's up next on Craigslist Spooky Times? I don't know. <laughs> I forgot. Well, I'll tell you, we there's movies that oh, we yeah. definitely wanted to cover, um, and we've kind of been rearranging the categories throughout, but uh, we realized that some of these movies that we had were relatively recent, and I would say that they're part of the new horror canon. Mm-hmm. So these are all going to be movies from the last five years or so that I think are good enough and important enough that they've entered the new horror canon. Let's call them modern horror classics. I love it. So that's going to be next up on Spooky Times is some modern horror classics. Or the new horror canon. We'll we'll decide what, what we're calling them. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. <laughs> <laughs> 